be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. All right, we are back. Let's take it where we left off on the last segment in the matter of tropical fish. Turns out that all over the world, gatherers of tropical fish are wreaking havoc on the native populations, but it turns out that um, uh, what happened after some fish arrived here from the Indian Ocean and got turned loose is a story of a much bigger disaster. On Monday of this week, Slate Magazine online had an article by Christine Wilcox about the worst marine invasion ever. Pieces written by someone self-described as a Ph.D. candidate at the Hawaiian Institute for Marine Biology. And yet, when James Morris asked her, do you know what this is? As he cut open a lionfish, she couldn't figure it out. The author pointed out, I should know basic fish biology inside and out, literally. When I cut open a fish, I can tell you which gross-smelling, gooey thing is the liver, which is the stomach, etc., but this time, she racked her brain for an answer and said, well, it's not gonads, it's not spleen, uh, I can't place it. Finally gave up. Finally she gave up, admitted she was clueless. Said James Morris, it's interstitial fat. To which the author asked, these lionfish are overweight? No, not overweight, said Morris. The fish were so obese, there were even signs of liver damage. Which caused her to point out what this means, that lionfish in the Atlantic are the worst marine invasion to date. Not just in the U.S., but globally. Lionfish win the gold medal for speed, spreading faster than any other invasive species. While there were scattered sightings from the mid-80s, the first confirmation that lionfish were becoming established in the Atlantic occurred off North Carolina in 2000. Since then, they've spread like locusts, eating their way through the Caribbean and along every coastline from North Carolina to Venezuela, including deep in the Gulf of Mexico. When lionfish arrive on a reef, they reduce native fish populations by 70%. These invasive populations are eight times more dense than those in their native range. And the most horrible part, these alien fish didn't come here on their own. There were some guesses that, well, maybe, maybe, they, maybe the coastal damage by Hurricane Andrew did it, or maybe, uh, maybe the ship's ballast waters uh, had some lionfish in it. But no. No, these frilly, poisonous fish were a favored pet which lured aquarium owners and aquarium dealers into a false sense of security. Since they are kind of cool looking, people when they tired of their fish tanks decided to release them into the wild. The author went on a dive to take a look at how many there were and observed that she couldn't get 20 yards from her starting point before she saw hundreds, literally hundreds of lionfish. Her spear couldn't fly fast enough to catch them all. Of course, this was part of the North Carolina's inaugural lionfish derby. We, as we reported on this program some months ago, uh, uh, optimistic knuckleheads thought they could cure this problem by eating our way through it. We'll just get, we'll just spearfish all of them and eat them. You know, in this case, in the last day of the tournament, a six diver team bagged 167 lionfish from one site in two dives and didn't even make a dent in the population on that particular wreck site. It's estimated there are more than a thousand fish at that particular site. So how is it we allow uh, pet store owners to bring in Burmese pythons and turn them loose to cause the ongoing, unfolding eco-disaster in the Florida Everglades? I talked at the top of the program about how I had libertarian sensibilities, but if there ever was a case where the government needed to step in when private enterprise was failing, this appears to be one such example. 
were facing the potential disaster of carp, which they were growing in fish farms on the Mississippi Delta, working their way up into the Great Lakes. A disaster will ensue, just as it ensued in Japan, according to Mental Floss magazine in the May issue, when Crown Prince Akihito came to Chicago back in 1960. Mayor Daly wasn't sure what to get him, so after spending a lot of thought of it, he settled on some local bluegill, a popular sport fish. It was a thoughtful gift. Akihito was a devoted student of ichthyology and even published his research in science and nature. The crown prince happily took his new fish home and gave them to a research facility in the hope they could be farmed to offer Japanese diners a new source of protein. Well, it was a good idea, but uh, the bluegill somehow escaped, and the fugitive fish liked their digs a little too much. It swarmed Japan's waterways, choking off the food supplies of native fish and driving at least one species into extinction. And to make matters worse... Bluegill might have been a delicacy in Illinois, but the fish-loving Japanese eaters seem to not care for their flavor. Nevertheless, authorities, I guess, I guess authorities are the same everywhere, aren't they? Well, the authorities in Japan think that the quickest way to solve this problem is to get people to change their tastes and start eating them. Noted mental floss, realizing it's easier to change palates than to wipe out a species, the government has begun collaborating with chefs to create new dishes that incorporate bluegill. Also want to cite a piece by Matt Weiser in the B, June, tw- June 20th, talking about how California is reevaluating its ship's ballast law. Good idea. Noted Matt Weiser, ships take on water as ballast when they're loaded with cargo as a crucial means of stabilizing the vessel. Some or all of that water is generally discharged in the next port to rebalance the load. Of course, in the process of doing this, invasive species from other parts of the globe get delivered to California, which has wreaked havoc on natural species that oftentimes can't compete against the invaders who managed to get here without their natural enemies. Noted Matt Weiser, California rivers and coastlines and the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta in particular are considered among the most invaded in the world. Of course, I do want to say that Bay Delta Conservation Plan may actually be of help in this particular instance. But the piece notes that in response, the legislature in 1999 passed the world's toughest ballast water regulations in an update in 2006, set treatment standards and compliance deadlines. Apparently there's deadlines coming up in 2014 and 2016 that are very tough, but according to the piece and according to a report by the State Lands Commission, which is supposed to enforce the law, no treatment systems available to shippers meet the state standards. As the regulations have unfolded, Required progress reports have said numerous systems have, quote, potential, unquote, to satisfy state laws. So apparently the uh, State Lands Commission has sprung into action and is asking the legislature to put off the deadlines. (laughs) And I'm not making this up. It will also consider awarding a $500,000 contract to the Delta Stewardship Council, a sister state agency, to study shore-based treatment. Peace notes that no matter what California decides or doesn't decide, ballast water will get treated to some degree because all ships must comply with federal standards under similar deadlines, but those standards are less stringent. They quote John Berge, vice president of the Pacific Merchant Shipping Association, saying our position is that the best solution is simply to align the California standard with the federal standard, similar to what every other coastal state and nation has done over the last year or so. I guess this is something to think about as we uh, go buy cheap foreign goods being shipped to us from overseas. Maybe that uh, Tickle Me Elmo that you bought at Walmart last year uh, came along with some killer crabs from Taiwan.
And like the weather, everyone may complain about the killer crabs, but no one seems to be doing that much about them. Here's another unbelievable water story. Apparently, L.A. and the Owens Valley reached a deal to lessen their dust woes, according to the L.A. Times, as repeated in the B. The Owens Lake, it used to be in Owens Lake, now it's referred to as the Owens Lake Bed, is apparently, for some reason, uh, the source of a lot of the dust in the western United States. I mean, it's actually a problem. Such a problem that the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power is now, is now fast-tracking mitigation measures that do not use water. The utility will be allowed to lay down a thinner layer of gravel to suppress dust. Here's the part I like best. The recently discovered location of an American Indian massacre at Owens Lake will be excluded from mitigation efforts because they would disturb the 328-acre site. Turned out the utility has already spent $1.2 billion on dust mitigation measures that began 16 years ago on orders from the Owens Valley Air Pollution Agency and the Great Basin Unified Air Pollution Control District. And let's change subjects. We've been talking, I don't know, for a couple years now on this program about how we would love to bring on NASA's Ed Stone on the show to talk about the Voyager spacecraft. Ed Stone had been the lead scientist of NASA's Voyager program since 1972, and he's been in the news of late as they're trying to decide what Voyager 1 is doing out there in the edge of the solar system. They've been expecting for some time now that... Uh, the craft will transition from basically the environment of our sun out into interstellar space. Since we've never been there, scientists are keen to learn about uh, how this would happen and what's going on. And unfortunately, it seems like we're going to have to wait a little bit longer because <laughs> the current data is confusing. Piece by Joel Achenbach in Washington Post notes that the edge of the solar system has no edge, it turns out. It has a fuzzy transitional area, not quite solar system and not quite interstellar space. This basic fact of our star's environment has been discovered by Voyager 1, described as one of the most remarkable spaceships ever built. Scientists have assumed that Voyager 1, launched in 1977, would have exited the solar system by now. That would mean crossing the heliopause and leaving behind the vast bubble known as the heliosphere, which is characterized by particles flung by the sun and the sun's magnetic field. Peace notes the scientist's assumption turns out to be half right. On August 25th of last year, Voyager 1 saw a sharp drop-off in the solar particles, also known as the solar wind. At the same time, there was a spike in galactic particles coming from all points of the compass. But the sun's magnetic field still registers, somewhat diminished on the spacecraft's magnetometer. So it's still in the sun's magnetic embrace, in a sense. Well, last week, three papers were published in the journal Science about uh, what's happening there. And, well, this unexpected transitional zone is, has been dubbed the heliosheath depletion region. And I tell you, whoever came up with that name deserves a whap in the head. We will continue to follow this story as well, but it is curious that Voyager 1 is now 124 astronomical units from the Sun. Its sister spacecraft, Voyager 2, is 102 astronomical units in a somewhat different direction, so maybe a while before it passes through the... <laughs> Let me see if I get this right. The heliosheath depletion region. 
Now, the piece notes that 40,000 years from now, Voyager 1 will be closer to another star than to our sun. That star goes by the romantic name of AC plus 793888, which causes us to ask someone at NASA, will you please come up with a better name than that? Anyway, let's hope in the next few months this Voyager spacecraft can punch through. We can get some, uh, some better news from out there in interstellar space and that we'll finally be able to bring Ed Stone on to talk about it. As related on this program previously, I had the privilege of attending the celebration at Jet Propulsion Laboratory in 1989 when the Voyager 2 spacecraft whipped past Neptune. It was a stunning success, something the equivalent of a 100-mile-long golf putt. And I remember passing Ed Stone as he walked seemingly on a cloud, looking like just about the happiest man on earth. So we're determined by God to get him on this show one of these days. All right, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We got more stuff to talk about in segment three. Don't go away. (laughs) 